this is amazing. Did you watch the TV, the new superhero guy? How cool is that? He's got a cape. Yeah, capes rock. Look! Up in the sky! It's a bird! It's a plane! Does anyone have any idea who this crusader is? Superhero never reveals his true identity. With no power comes no responsibility. Welcome to Now Playing's Marvel Misfits Retrospective Series. Oh my god, it defies all the laws of nature. Part of the Now Playing Marvel Comic Movie Series. Good call, baby doll. Join Stuart. God, I wish I had a son like you. Jacob. I for one would definitely fuck his brains out if I got the chance. And Arnie. Where do they get a load of me? As they review the Marvel Misfits Howard the Duck... This is obviously no place for an intelligent, sensitive duck. Man-Thing. Oh, yeah, that's a man, all right, huh? It's the Man-Thing, man! And Kick-Ass. He should call himself Ass-Kick instead. <laughs> Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new installment in this series. And keep coming back as we continue looking at all the Marvel comic book movie adaptations. X-Men, Fantastic Four. You guys never saw One Night in Spider-Man? These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and may have foul language. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, you cunts. Let's see what you can do now. Today we're discussing Kick-Ass 2, starring Aaron Taylor Johnson, Christopher Mintz-Ploss, Chloe Grace Moretz. (laughs) Why do they all have three names? James Eugene Jim Carrey. (laughs) <laughs> and directed by Jeff Wadlow. I'm Arnie, your motherfucking co-host of Now Play. Stuart in LA. And this is Jacob. Game on, cocksuckers. Game on indeed. We are back at Kick-Ass. Marvel Misfits gets a sequel. I don't know if I'd be more shocked if Howard the Duck had a sequel. Uh, I think that is possible in these days of Guardians of the Galaxy, where trees and what have you are getting their own movie. Anthropomorphized raccoons. Yes, I think any comic book at this point, Marvel could probably pull anything out and go with it. Although, again, the part of the reason why Kick-Ass is in The Misfits is that he's not really officially Marvel, right? It's not Marvel Universe. It's Yeah, it, it's like the DC Hitman, where a lot of those came from different imprints of DC. That's what Kick-Ass is. It's published by Marvel, but it's an imprint. It's not related to the Marvel Universe at all. Well, you know, Kick-Ass was one of my very first exposures in this podcast to superhero movies. I was really, really green at the time. Coming back to it now, I've got to say, it remains one of the very best films that I have seen, Marvel or DC, I would say top ten, possibly top five, of all of the comic book movies you guys have had me watch. So, if we were going to get a sequel to any superhero, I think this is the one I'd most want to see. I agree with you. Kick-Ass is one of my all-time favorite films. And Matthew Vaughn followed up with another one of my all-time favorite films, especially superhero films, with X-Men First Class. I went back and rewatched Kick-Ass 1. I didn't need to. I've seen it so often, but I went back and rewatched it in anticipation for Kick-Ass 2, and I was excited for Kick-Ass 2. I really was wanting to return to that universe, and I know that they'd wanted to, but it only made $48 million at the box office and less than that overseas, so it was not successful for Lionsgate, but it did well on video, so we did get a sequel. 
Yeah, I was shocked to see that it did get a sequel. I love that first kick-ass film. I'm with you guys, one of my favorite films, especially in the superhero genre. But I'm the comic book guy. This is actually two miniseries that they combined here, a Hit-Girl storyline and Kick-Ass 2 storyline. And having read those, I was hoping, you know, okay, they took a series that I wasn't too hot on and they made a really enjoyable movie. Maybe they do that here, that I wasn't hot on the comics again that the film was going to be adapted from. They did so well with that first one, there was some hope that they could improve on the source material. Yeah, I wasn't too worried about the comics because, as I mentioned when we did Kick-Ass 1, I started reading Kick-Ass 1, the comic, didn't like it despite how much I liked the movie, which I'd seen first. Started reading the Kick-Ass 2 comic series. I stopped after a couple issues. I trusted the filmmakers and Matthew Vaughn, who produced this, I didn't necessarily trust Mark Miller and the comic creators. Right. This is one of the rare properties, Jacob, I think, where you've said the movies are so far ahead of what was done on the page. That's intriguing and encouraging. But, you know, I did not go back and watch Kick-Ass for this podcast. I went back and listened to our original recording. And one of the things that I insisted a lot on that show was that if we ever did get a sequel, Lionsgate wouldn't do it because Lionsgate lost a lot of money on Kick-Ass. And I was right. I'm proven right. We are under new management here. Even though a lot of the cast is returning, a lot of the people behind the scenes, including the studio that made it, are different this time. This has gone to Universal, and I hate to say it, but what used to be one of the most successful movie studios has really fallen on hard times. And yeah, they looked at the minuscule profits of Kick-Ass on video and said, this is worth our while, whereas Lionsgate said, no way. It means that even though we're getting Kick-Ass 2, it's almost a reboot. It's almost a new thing, I think, given the fact that we have a new studio funding it, a new director writing, and a whole new creative mindset pushing it forward. But we do have Matthew Vaughn behind the scenes and, strangely, Brad Pitt. Okay. <laughs> but <laughs> Brad Pitt's involved yes. in this? Producing, they're throwing money in, yes. They're, they're saying yes to this and taking a check for whatever comes back to them. I think that with Mark Miller's source material and his direct hand in the creation of these films and Matthew Vaughn handpicking Jeff Wadlow behind the scenes, it does feel like a cohesive unit. And without getting into this movie too much, I'll say that this one feels really connected. It does not feel like a reboot to me. This feels like it picks up right where the last one left off. Stuart, you, you're saying a reboot. Maybe they reboot the behind-the-scenes production cast here, but I agree, Arnie. This is a direct sequel. I think if you hadn't seen that first one, you're going to be a little bit lost. You're not going to quite get all the character relationships in this film. This almost picks up like the day after Kick-Ass. Only everyone's aged three years. <laughs> that, that hurts Hit Girl most of all. Yeah, I think they say in the film it's, what, two years later. Wasn't this supposed to be called Balls to the Wall? Wasn't that the original subtitle? When did that change? You know what? Mark Miller, he says a lot of things. I'll, I'll just put that out there. He says so much. He's a hype machine. I believe he, doesn't he work for Fox now? He's like their comic book consultant for Fox and all those X-Men movies. I mean, the guy's a hype machine. I, yeah, originally they are going to say Kick-Ass 2, Balls to the Wall, that... I don't know, that got dropped. I mean, Kick-Ass 2 didn't even come out as far as a comic after Kick-Ass. There was a Hit-Girl miniseries first, and then they did Kick-Ass 2. So, yeah, there was a lot of talk about where this story would go. Once it came out in the comics, it, it changed a bit. I don't know this director. You said that he was handpicked by Vaughn. Vaughn's off working on 
another project. It was supposed to be Days of Future Past, in fact. <laughs> he drops out of more movies than he makes, I swear to God. Okay. So he didn't direct this one, so he couldn't direct the next X-Men. All right, makes sense. <laughs> but I looked up this guy's resume. I've, I've heard of the slasher film Cry Wolf. I never knew about this action movie, Never Back Down, but apparently it's what really sold him as an action director. He made a couple episodes of Bates Motel. We'll be talking about that in the donation drive a few weeks from now. But I don't know what we're getting with the new hands here. Jeff Watto, all I know is that he's Vaughn approved. Judging by his resume, I think I saw him in Pearl Harbor, where he played next guy in line number one. That is as much as I know about him. Yeah, but we'll be discussing him again. He apparently is really following Matthew Vaughn's career, because after he does his kick-ass movie, he does uh, the next X-Men movie after the one next year, X-Force, in 2016. Or he'll follow Matthew Vaughn's career and drop out. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll see. Let's see how the grosses do on this one. He may be asked to leave. Arnie, why don't we get into it? What's the plot of Kick-Ass 2? Since Kick-Ass 1, Dave Lezisky has not donned the wetsuit, preferring to spend his time with girlfriend Katie. But as new heroes hit the streets, he feels a little bit left out, so he finds Mindy, a.k.a. Hit Girl, who spent her days continuing her training. She trains Kick-Ass for three weeks as her late Big Daddy trained her, and she fights to make the memory of her father proud. But when she's found out by her guardian, Marcus, she decides to fully give up being Hit-Girl. Dave is disappointed, and his girlfriend dumps him, thinking he was sleeping with Mindy, but Kick-Ass finds new super friends in the form of Justice Forever, a group of other masked heroes led by ex-mafia enforcer turned born-again Christian Colonel Stars and Stripes. On that team, Dave finds a new lover in the form of Night Bitch, who likes to fuck with the masks on. But also getting back into costume is Chris D'Amico, previously known as Red Mist. His mother had moved him to Long Island and kept him under house arrest, but Chris still has a burning hatred for kick-ass, having blown up Chris's father with a bazooka. When he accidentally kills his mother in a tanning bed accident, Chris dons her S&M gear and christens himself the motherfucker and builds a team called the Toxic Megacunts to kill Kickass. The Toxic Megacunts start their attacks, killing Colonel Stars and Stripes and assaulting Night Bitch in her house, and the cops arrest all the costumed heroes. But Dave's dad takes the fall for Dave, claiming to be Kickass. But motherfuckers' men visit Dave's dad in prison and kill him, and at the funeral, they kidnap Dave. But Mindy, attending the funeral, comes out of retirement, and Hit Girl saves Dave. The two then put out a call for all heroes, and they go assault Motherfucker's lair, preempting Motherfucker's planned fertilizer bombing of New York City. A massive fight ensues, with Hit Girl squaring off against Motherfucker's strongest fighter, an ex-KGB agent, Mother Russia, and Chris and Dave fight on the roof. Chris falls through a broken skylight, and Dave tries to save him, but Chris insists on falling to be a martyred supervillain. But he lands in a shark tank, and a post credit scene shows he lived, but is missing at least his legs and maybe a few other limbs. And with the motherfucker stopped, Hit-Girl leaves town to fight crime, and Dave starts taking superheroing seriously as he works out and plans an armored suit as credits roll. So that's Kick-Ass 2. There's a lot more Mindy stuff we'll be talking about as well. But my first introduction to anything from Kick-Ass 2 was, as it often is for me, if you listen to Marvelicious Toys where I talk Marvel collecting, they made action figures for this. 
What? Yeah. They, they were high-end, though. You're not buying these at Walmart or Toys R Us. No, you are buying these at Toys R Us. Well, yeah, Toys R Us does carry those collector's line. You're right. And they had to rename them. When I was at Comic-Con, I was able to buy these in uncensored packaging with Kick-Ass 2. And, indeed, I have a motherfucker figure. <laughs> but if you go to Toys R Us, it's the KA2 line, and he's just the MF. Well, I did notice, I was wondering, you know, being here in Texas, it's kind of conservative, if you haven't heard. I was wondering, you know, I know they did for Kick-Ass, they had some censored movie posters, so I did look at the posters, and it was funny, because one, it said Kick-Ass 2, but the 2 was covering, like, the two S's, so you couldn't really see ass. I guess if you were a little kid, you might not know what it said, but right next to that, they had one that clearly said Kick-Ass 2, it was a different type of poster. So yeah, with this one, they always have to skirt that line. I noticed the trailers, they were on late at night, uh, because of... I guess, ass in it. It's kind of ironic, but Kick-Ass is the only superhero that I don't see people sporting t-shirts and dressing up as when I go to these movie showings. I mean, typically, I go see a superhero movie on opening weekend, and some I'm going to see that superhero in the audience, usually multiple times at multiple different weights. But, <laughs> you know, people people do really like to cosplay when they go to see this, but... My audience for Kick-Ass 2, they weren't merchandised out. They weren't wearing other superheroes. They weren't wearing Kick-Ass gear. I, I don't feel like they really exploited the character as a merchandising vehicle. And maybe that's because they're afraid to for children, or maybe it's just because it's not that kind of property. I'm not sure, but... This is an R-rated film, and I, I know back in the 70s, you know, uh, Kenner toyed with doing alien figures, a la the Star Wars Kenner line, yes. uh, for an R-rated film, and they backed off because of that. They still had a few toys. I know you had that one alien figure, Stuart, but yeah. the 80s, we had Robocop toys and Rambo toys, all based off of R-rated franchises. I think they've really backed off because of parent complaints or parent group complaints, but you don't see a lot of marketing towards kids now with R-rated film. I guess that's the case. Yeah, I think the R-rated audience is just a little bit less cosplay perhaps. I know that when I go to Comic-Con, though, I see a ton of hit girls. Usually it's parents having dressed up their little girl as hit girl, and they just look badass. I was going to ask you, Arnie, I, the last time I went to Comic-Con, it was much closer to that original Kick-Ass release. I saw everything from hit toddlers to hit 40-year-old women dressed up. <laughs> I, I don't know if that popularity has remained. You even saw a few Kick-Asses in their wetsuits, but at least after that first film, it did, did have cosplaying at you know the hardcore comic book conventions. Yeah, there's some of that, but even in L.A., I think there'd be less of that at theater. But, yeah, I think also because it's not a Marvel property, it's just a little bit more underground. I mean, the movie, we already said, it wasn't hugely successful. If Kick-Ass had made $300 million, well, we would have had a sequel a year ago, and you'd probably have been among a lot of smelly wetsuits. Right. And I think that's why so much of the beginning of this movie, as we get back into the world, is explaining it anew. I feel like they do a lot of callbacks to the original ones, telling people, in case they haven't seen the first one, here's who these characters are, here's everything you missed, before they change and go off in different directions. Well, this opening scene is a direct repeat of what we saw Mindy and her Big Daddy doing. You know, Big Daddy training Mindy, shooting her with the gun, now we got... Mindy taking the Big Daddy role and shooting Kick-Ass with the gun. Works very well. I instantly got that without the creepy vibe I got the first time I saw Nick Cage doing that to a 12-year-old girl. 
Yeah, now it's kind of humorous. It's not like, what? You know, especially if you didn't know what you were in for with that film. You're like, okay, we got a dad shooting his kid. You know, now now it's funny. Now it's the little girl, or I guess the 15-year-old girl, shooting her teenage friend. Yeah, as I mentioned, Chloe Grace Moretz has grown up a lot. I think overall that kind of hurts Hit Girl in this movie because a lot of the shock, a lot of the humor in Kick-Ass 1 is that you have a little, little girl, a grade school girl saying cunt and kicking ass. Here, she's definitely older. She's definitely pubescent. It's still funny, though. I still laughed when she shoots him in the back. Right. She's still 15, still technically a child, but I agree with you. The shock is off, partly because we've seen it before and partly because she definitely looks much more mature. She's ready for the Hunger Games. That said, (laughs) the opening scene is a callback to the first one and worked perfectly to get me in the mindset. They bring back the original film's score, which I love, that uplifting, inspirational, kick-ass music, and having this scene, it's really just saying, hey, remember, you liked Kick-Ass 1, and then we get into something new with a new score and a new voiceover. It feels of a whole, but yet fresh. Yeah, I feel like when they do this montage, when you're getting to know Dave in the first Kick-Ass film, there's the joke about him jerking off, fantasizing about his teacher or the National Geographic. They throw in another masturbation joke here where he's playing with his wetsuit, cleaning it or something, and his dad walks in and it looks like he's jerking off. It feels like they're trying to hit a lot of those same beats. I don't know if it's as successful or we've just seen it before, so it feels very sequel, but they understand what was successful what worked in that first film that irreverent humor and they're they're keeping it here at least universal didn't make this so that only the people that saw the last one would see this one they they're hoping to get a broader audience here i do think this movie on some level is reaching out for a younger teen demographic and i feel like yeah these early scenes they're all familiar to those that have already seen Kick-Ass. We know what's happening. We already laughed at these jokes. They're not going to have the same impression, but it's to get everyone else into the world and to let them know before it radically changes. Now, I couldn't remember at the end of Kick-Ass, did they give up the suit? This whole idea that he wasn't going to keep fighting crime was a surprise to me. I thought it was weird that two years have passed and he hasn't been Kick-Ass. He spent most of that movie quitting being Kick-Ass. And when that movie ended... I don't think it was definitively said, but it was kind of implied that he had inspired a group of new heroes and he was just going to enjoy being with Katie. It works for me. The Mindy stuff is where it gets a little bit more interesting because Mindy was going to live with Marcus, the Guardian, and whether or not she would give up being Hit Girl, it seemed like she'd have to, right? Big Daddy's gone. Right. And Dave even chimes in and weighs in and says he was insane. This was a negative influence. Nobody should turn their child into an assassin. We're to presume that, yeah, she's going to be deprogrammed and reoriented into the world, that she's got a lot to unlearn in order to be a normal high school kid. But of course, because we don't really want to see that, (laughs) she hasn't been. What we find is that she's still been doing this. She's been training. Has she been going out and killing people? I would take it as yes. I think that the training is what we saw because, hey, this is a really low-budget film. It's much easier to film in her lair than having a whole bunch of extras and extra stunt scenes. But I took it as she's still out patrolling. I mean, why else would she have that really great motorcycle? Right. Yeah, that we only get one scene with. But yeah, no, at least in the comic book, yes, she's still going out 
killing people, training. She's still keeping up that persona. And I, I think you're right, Arnie. I think that's the assumption we're supposed to make here in the opening. Uh, we'll get to a scene later on where, yeah, you could tell there wasn't quite the budget to do what at least the storyline was in the comic. They do tone it down here. Yeah, it's weird to me. I almost feel like it's too hard to do what they do here, which is that say, yeah, she's still been doing it, but now she's got to give it up. I almost think it would be cleaner if she was trying to be a, a normal high school and also had a relapse later, because I'm not really understanding what this promise is to Marcus that makes her decide that she can't be hit girl. Well, I think that a lot of this is just a thematic thing. Dave gave up being kick-ass, and Hit Girl didn't give up being Hit Girl. But we waste no time with Dave being bored, just like he was at the first film, and getting the wetsuit back on. So we see why people would want to put it on, and we want that connection again between Kick-Ass and Hit Girl. But Hit Girl then deciding to take off the costume... It is a little bit muddy. I did really pay attention, watch this movie twice, and all Marcus says is Big Daddy's last wish, his last order for his daughter was to trust Marcus and do what Marcus says. And so she's trying to honor Big Daddy by going out and fighting and doing what he taught her when he was alive, but his last order was do what Marcus says, and that Big Daddy would want her to have a normal life, and so... I think it's still her trying to make her father happy and do what her father wants is why she agrees when she's caught by Marcus in that great Ferris Bueller chase to see who can get home first. I'm glad you're not the only one that tied that. I totally was thinking Ferris Bueller. I was cracking up with that, I don't know, that parody of that final chase scene there. All the way down to getting in bed and pulling the sheets up to your neck. I mean, it was very Ferris Bueller, and I loved it for that. I almost expected her to bounce the motorcycle off a trampoline in a backyard. I was waiting. I'm right there with you, Arnie. Now, they did mention that there was a letter that was left to Hit Girl. Big Daddy, after he died, she read some letter that said, you know, trust Marcus. Was that in the first film? I don't remember ever seeing a letter. Is this just something they wrote in for convenience sake? I think they need to create as much ties to the idea that Marcus is doing what Big Daddy wants as possible. I don't remember that either, but I, I it's just a stretch. I mean, Marcus feels like a foster father. I'm sorry, but he does not feel like he would carry the same kind of weight with her that Big Daddy would. So they have to kind of contrive. I think that's why they invoke Big Daddy, though. She's not doing this for Marcus. She's doing this because Big Daddy wanted Marcus to take care of her and convinces her that this is what Big Daddy would want her to do. He, she's not doing it for Marcus. She's doing it for him as a surrogate for her father. And Marcus, this is one of the only two actors I caught who didn't come back. This was a recast from a guy I knew from the V reboot TV series. Ah, oh, that's where he was from. He looked familiar. You know, this was a little bit cleaner in the Hit Girl miniseries because Marcus had married Mindy's biological mother after she and her father disappeared. So it was really about putting that role away to keep her mother at ease and not worry her mother because she'd been missing the first 10 or 12 years of her life. Here, because they, they've changed that storyline a bit, yeah, they, they have to make it about pleasing Marcus somehow, the stepfather, which isn't as clean. I think that's why they take a lot of time, you know, showing the big daddy suit, doing those zoom-ins, playing the 28 Days Later music during that great scene from the kick-ass film where Big Daddy's taking out the mafia that warehouse uh, they, they really got to tie that connection here because 
it's not as strong. We, we got to feel that she believes that this is what her dad wants. I was really worried when they played that 28 Days Later score. <laughs> Because I'm like, we just reviewed a few weeks ago, 28 weeks later, and I talked about the overuse of that score. I'm like, oh, don't tell me there's two sequels that overuse the same score. <laughs> but it was just the one time and a one callback, and I did like it in that regard. No, it's a couple times, Arnie, including yeah. the end. They, they have a rap remix. Uh, it's there, but they have changed it in a way that the tempo is sometimes faster or slower or disguised in a way. But I didn't notice it when I watched Kick-Ass because I didn't have 28 Days Later fresh on the brain, but I couldn't help noticing it during this viewing. But even though Mindy did give it up, I love her training of Kick-Ass. I love that montage. I love... How it shows her being strong. Dave's trying to do these pull-ups, and she has to lift him, <laughs> and all of her weaponry. And, come on, the scene where she sends him out on patrol, and he's the whitest pimp ever, is really hysterical. Even if it is, I do feel they're replaying a lot of beats from the first one. Here, Dave goes out on his first patrol and gets his ass handed to him, and is saved by Hit Girl. Well, when he went on his first patrol in the first movie, he got his ass handed to him and got hit by a car, and then when he went to the drug den, he was saved by Hit Girl. I gotta say, though, with that first film, I said I wanted my Hit Girl movie. That's what I wanted. That's the character I found interesting. And so, I, I kind of don't mind that they're repeating some of those beats here. I think she's the far more interesting character. Uh, I, you know, as we get into this film, I think her arc's far more interesting in this film, and I think her action, she's the one that it can kick ass in these films, and, and so I prefer to watch her fight over Dave getting pounded over and over and over. Yeah, you almost forget about Dave in the movie. It's it's strange, but this this film, even more than the last one, is filled with characters, and you just lose sight of Kick-Ass. If it weren't named after him, I would forget about this character entirely. It is clearly the Hit Girl show. Agreed completely. I love Hit Girl in this, especially again in this opening, because she's just got this callous ultraviolence. She cuts off a guy's hand and then tries the line, pants on fire. She's more concerned if that line yes. worked as a badass line instead of the fact yeah, that she's, she's so proficient at killing. She doesn't have to worry about her physical skills. Now it's all about the one-liners. <laughs> she's moved into Arnold territory now. <laughs> Yeah, and the motorcycles, just badass, loving her in this. But yeah, Dave does feel underdeveloped. Why is he getting back in the outfit? We want him back in the outfit. This is a movie called Kick-Ass 2, so we need to get him back in. But it feels a little bit underdeveloped. It's just a great way to get them back together. And the fact that Mindy doesn't necessarily want to. First of all, some great lines about Robin. Nobody wants to be Robin. Robin wishes he was me. <laughs> but... Also, this sets up the mission of this movie. The theme of this movie is about companionship. And Dave saying, don't you want to know there's someone there for you? Someone who's got your back. I think that is what this movie is all about. The first one's about self-empowerment and self-actualization. This one's about family. Yeah, I think the main motivating factor for Dave is jealousy at the beginning here. He sees all these other superheroes coming out, and they're getting the news, and he was the first public one. There's a whole debate where Big Daddy was the first real superhero, but Kick-Ass was the first public one. I think that's what kind of spurs him on, is there's this jealousy. He's lost that celebrity. He wants to get back in that role. I'm kind of surprised that Katie's still with him, that he's given up the suit. That seemed to be like her big turn-on in Kick-Ass, is that she was banging a superhero, and he's given that up now, but they've stayed together for two years. But she's cheating on him so cheated on him yeah she cheated on him with malik a volunteer at the needle exchange has a bigger baton than kick ass katie is barely in this movie and she is nasty because when hit girl decides to 
take off the mask. She and Dave have an argument about it in the school, and everybody think, yeah, Mindy is dumping Dave, and Dave gets a lot of shit for, as they put it, fucking a ninth grader, a 15-year-old. And Well, I don't even know why she bothered to come back with this. I think this movie starts in a weird place. I feel like they wanted to tell us who these people were, and then they wanted to send them in a new direction, and, and that's the correct instinct. But I almost feel like, why have Katie here? She's supposedly what's kept him away from crime fighting. Is that the inference? I, I just don't even know why you'd bring her back for this one second cameo. I thought it was a nice bit of continuity. I think they tried to bring back all the characters they could. Even the character Todd comes back. Played by someone else. Yeah, because I think it's too small a role. The guy who played Todd is now playing Quicksilver in the upcoming X-Men film, so... They tried to really make it feel of a whole. I like that. I like that it's not just in the voiceover, well, I broke up with Katie and decided to get the outfit back on. I like the jokes. I like the 15 will get you 20 perv. I am laughing and having a good time even while Katie's being really nasty to him. It's a good way to end the relationship in a cinematic way that doesn't feel too efficient or cheaping out. We don't want to pay Katie to come back. That's fine. You want the continuity there. It, it seemed like a weird one-off. To me, it just seemed like, okay, how do we get kick-ass single? How do we get Katie out of the film? Why write her in there anyway? This is high school. A two-year relationship is really rare in high school. Looking at it strictly from the screenwriting standpoint, you want to get us into the movie as fast as possible. You want to have everyone understand what's happened and where they're going to go. There's so much that they're going to tackle and so many characters they're going to juggle. I think wasting their time the way that they do in this first 20 minutes in high school, every second is precious, and I just feel like it was done more for the newbies than it was done for me. But I found it amusing. I was laughing, I was smiling, I was enjoying the action. I was enjoying the jokes. Will you enjoy them as much as before? There's a specific arc, and that's Hit Girl. This is, in the theater, what got the laughs were Hit Girl trying to assimilate to high school. And, and I think this is the real heart of the film, is it's Mean Girls, where Lindsay Lohan is played by a psychopathic killer. That's a child. This is the part that works for me, is seeing Hit Girl's story, her arc, her trying to fit into high school. You know, we find out at the beginning that she's been hacking the server and saying she has perfect attendance. The joke is she forgets to show up to receive her perfect attendance award. So now when she finally gives up that role, she now has to fit in here. That's a little bit strange to me that immediately Marcus is able to get her a sleepover with Brooke, the most popular girl in the school. I never understood Brooke's motivation because it seems like Brooke is trying to do a she's all that where they take a geek to chic, you know? Yeah, th no, that's exactly it. They She even drops the line like she could change anyone and make anyone popular as long as they're not popular as her. That's the key. She likes to have projects. <laughs> You know, there's a whole strain of movie I realize that I've never watched that this is, like, tapping into here. I go, like, Clueless, Easy A. I did just see Mean Girls, actually, about three or four months ago. I've actually seen the movie, but I rarely see these female-centric bring it on. There's this whole, like, sort of subgenre of, like, girls being catty to one another in high school, right? Is it bad that I've seen all those movies you just named? <laughs> I, I've seen most of them, too. I kind of enjoy that genre. I don't know. There's, 
I, again, you know, when you, Mindy goes to this sleepover and she's, what is this? Union J? Is this supposed to, I don't know if that's a real band or if it's supposed to be a One Direction. I thought it was a fake parody of like all of these bands. It turns out they're real and that song okay. they're playing. Cause I did have to Google cause I'm like, I thought for sure they were making fun of the Bieber reaction. The way they play this video. Oh, no, 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 no. There's One Direction, which is a boy band from yeah. the UK. And I thought it was a playoff. Oh, that. yeah, yeah. They have that, uh, you don't know you're beautiful. They got a movie coming out directly. Directed by Morgan Spurlock, of all people. It's, it's, I don't know who they are either, but now I do. It's strange. But yeah, Union J is a real band. That's a real video wow. that all the wow. women are getting soaked to. No way. That looks so much like a parody. I was cracking up. Are you sure? I, I swear to God, they're on the soundtrack. I checked their wiki page. Unless whoever made Kick-Ass 2 is trolling wiki and creating fake yeah. pages. I actually think that's what happened. I think you've been punked. I no. think that this... Yes, no, I There's think- a YouTube video for this Carrie You song. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, I was probably part of the viral marketing. This is probably on a kick-ass budget. This is not real. These are four, it's an English four-piece boy band from London. This is not real. This is real. They have, uh, there's a concert on December 10th. I can buy tickets right now. They're on Sony Music Entertainment and RCA Records. I'm looking at the Wikipedia right now. This is an elaborate punk that here's the carry you YouTube I'm seeing right now. It is such an elaborate punk. I can buy like nine albums on Amazon. No, this can't be real. There's no way that this can be real. Why would they agree to be mocked in this way? Yeah. Hey, hey, they probably threw some money their way. Uh, money stocks. I gotta say that this scene, is, this is probably one of the funniest scenes, and it's because of Hit Girl. We know her as this psychopathic killer, and here she is, like, orgasming to the video. I love this, that you see this struggle with her from being ruthless killer to being a teenage girl. I, I, I don't know, maybe that's why I like that teenage girl, the catty girl genre. It's just, there's something fun about it. No, no, and I, I think this is very important. Hit Girl is a one-joke premise. Little girl, she goes around and kills people and mouths off. They already did that last movie. Where can you go with this? This is the right direction. This is absolutely what they needed to do. She is still a teenager at heart. That is important to remember, that deep down in there, there is still an underdeveloped woman who is going to respond to the things that all teenage girls are responding to. I think this is well played and I think should have started out the movie. I mean, I just think of, they needed to explain that she was a hit person for the layman, but it would have been cleaner to just start here with her in high school trying to make friends and seeing her in this way. Screw the layman. I needed this movie to reassure me that I was going to get the characters I liked. And if you didn't start with the fun hit girl scenes and her pants on fire scene and all that, I would be very upset and think they betrayed my character. Yeah, I still want to get the ultra violence in this. I want to see that over the top that made that first one. One of the great factors of that first one is that it took the violence so far. Yeah. And I think this also strengthens my argument from our first podcast. I don't think Mindy ever thought of a guy as anything beyond an ally or a target until this Union J video. I don't think she had a crush on Dave. I don't think she thought that way. It was Union J that propelled her into womanhood. No, so clear here. The only reason she takes him in for training is because she has a crush on him. Why would she waste her time on this nerd trying to be a superhero? There's only one reason, because she likes him. She wasn't like having an awakening because of one music video. She has liked him from the word go. 
No, I'm go- I'm still going with Arnie on this one. I I do think there is a platonic friendship there. That that's how she was raised to be this superhero. And yes, she wants a sidekick. She's lost her daddy. She's lost that partner, and she wants to replace that. I don't see- necessarily see it as a romantic love where she wants to get with Dave. I I think that is part of her arc is you know growing into womanhood. One one of the things I see here with this whole Union J scene, you know, we've seen so many of these superhero films. We bring up the tropes that a lot of them do. We always bring up Superman. To the losing of the powers. I see this as a, a very funny way, you know, to depower Hit Girl for this film to until she has to come back into the role is having that be about going through puberty, going through womanhood. That's your depowerment is, you know, you want to all of a sudden start to look pretty instead of being a kick-ass killer. And what I think really tells me this is later in the movie, after she's seen the Union J video, Dave is changing his shirt in front of her, and all of a sudden she looks at the chest and realizes, he has abs like the Union J folk, and is the first time she gets flustered around him. That is the first moment she has a romantic inkling towards him. The whole thing about dating, she goes out on a date just despite him because he won't notice her. I mean, she gets mad that he finds out he's screwing this night bitch. There's a jealousy that runs throughout. You can see it in every scene together. This is all after Union J, though. Yeah, before Union J, she was completely asexual. Union J, the real band. And as they say, (laughs) it's biology, bitch. Don't fight it. But I do like that what the cool kids are selling is what Hit Girl is giving up. They ask her, don't you want to walk out in skin-tight clothes knowing everyone worships you? Don't you want to raise a little hell when you sneak out at night? And don't you want to know you belong? She had all that when she was Hit Girl and fighting with Dave, and now she has to try to find that exact same thing again. I love that this film is thematically consistent. It's about a team. Later on, Kick-Ass, when he's talking about Justice Forever, says he never played varsity football, but that's what this must have felt like. It's about finding your place with others like you. Right, and there's a lot of things happening in tandem. As she is falling into this clique, which I see is clearly a negative influence. I mean, I love the fact that it's supposed to be an innocent slumber party and they're going to do bath salts and talk about frank sex and all of this. They're not clean-cut girls, but as Mindy is falling into this, Kickass is also falling into his clan. Now, my question for you is, as he meets the new Avengers parody, what have you, whatever you want to call them, Justice Forever, are we supposed to think that they're also a negative influence? No, I think we're supposed to really like them, but see them as somewhat ineffectual, with the exception of Colonel Stars and Stripes. But none of them are Hit Girl. Hit Girl was Dave's friend, but also really could kick ass. You see him partnering with Dr. Gravity, played by Donald Faison, a guy I loved on Scrubs. He's part of the Robot Chicken crew. And... You see that he's fun to hang around with, but he's not very good in a fight. They get attacked by five guys, and the two of them have to run away, whereas Hit Girl would have just cut all their hands off. What I think is interesting here is when it, you know, what does it mean to be a superhero, or at least a superhero in the real world? And there's, yes, there's that violent side, there's that Hit Girl side where we're going after muggers and crack dealers and all that. What what I really like is when they 
focus, this team, you know, they get together, we, we think they're very violent, and we'll get a violent scene with them later on, but a lot of it is community service. And I think when we look at these people that have, in real life, that have donned these superhero personas, I, that's what they spend a lot of their time doing, going around, you know, passing out flyers for lost dogs or, you know, kidnapped kids or working at soup kitchens. You know, I, I think that's one of the neat things about this team is that they kind of move that focus away from the ultraviolence. We're going to get back there, but they spend at least a little time showing, hey, here's what you could actually do in real life as a superhero go work at a soup kitchen well this confused me because like i said it felt like our three principal characters from last movie which would be dave mindy and chris are all binding these groups i saw them all as negative influences and not necessarily because of dr gravity or insect man or some of the more obvious goofy ones but because of Jim Carrey. This movie fooled me. When Jim Carrey was announced to be in the movie, and when I saw his clips in the trailer and what he was doing, I was sure that he was going to be a bad guy. I didn't realize he was going to be the new Big Daddy. Oh, I'm in the same boat. Actually, I thought he was going to be the Big Daddy, but this whole movie, I didn't trust him. Right. I thought for sure, especially they say he used to be a mafia enforcer, Mm -hmm. and I thought what he was doing was kind of the Red Mist thing. Remember when Red Mist would say, hey, we have to go do this thing with Kick-Ass, and it was really just helping his father's agency? I thought that he was using these heroes. When they go and do a hit on this guy for supposedly human trafficking, somebody who works for Chris D'Amico's uncle, the new mob boss, I thought for sure they were just doing something for a different mobster. I never trusted Colonel Stars and Stripes, the same way I never trusted Big Daddy at first last time. I thought he was going to turn against Kick-Ass and the other heroes. But no, it's very on the level. I do wonder how people will react. This is Jim Carrey. I don't think he has quite the cachet that he did like in the 90s. I don't remember the last time he did a film and the last time i saw him is when he did a surprise appearance when conan was doing his live show out in la i don't remember the last movie he's done but having read that comic you know you put someone like jim carrey you're thinking this is going to be a big role he kind of goes away halfway two quarters through the film what surprised me the most though was i don't know if i would have guessed this was jim carrey if i it hadn't been advertised he's not playing his usual self his rubber face self that's what i was expecting he kind of plays the role straight which surprised me It's the first time I've ever thought Jim Carrey could act, truthfully. He is not Jim Carrey. You'd forget he is Jim Carrey. He never breaks Colonel Stars and Stripes' persona, his face. When I saw the first trailer for this, I knew Jim Carrey was in it, and I watched the trailer. I go, where was Jim Carrey? Oh my god, that was Jim Carrey? And I think I could have had the same reaction this whole movie. Well, this is the direction he's been doing in the last ten years. I mean, the reason why you haven't seen him a lot is because I do think that he is shunned Dumb and Dumber, Ace Ventura, The Mask. Not entirely. I saw him two years ago in Mr. Popper's Penguins and before that in Yes Man. I've seen him. Okay, well, you've been watching those. (laughs) I've been watching Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind or the number 23. I mean, he has definitely tried to tone that down and be a dramatic actor. This is not the first time he's done it. But I agree, it is a nice surprise to see him reel it in. But by doing so... I'm thinking sinister. I'm thinking this guy is bad. And not like you, Arnie, thinking that he was going to pull the wool over these kids and trap them. I just thought that he had the wrong impulse, that he wanted to go in and hurt people and have fun with it, that he was calling himself 
stars and stripes. I thought it was a criticism of America, quite honestly. Fundamentalist Christian who, under the blanket of patriotism, uses it to torture and terrorize. I thought we were going to get a send-up here. And I thought that his bloodthirstiness, his need to have the dogs that sick people's balls, all of that stuff was going to get them over their heads and they would, someone would die because of his recklessness. That's what I assumed here. That's what I thought we were building here. The fact that he ends up playing the big daddy role, we don't have enough time for him to feel like a mentor to kick ass. I never felt like they had a relationship. It was weird when he drops out of the picture so quickly. With Mark Miller writing this, he's from over across the pond, as they say. I have no doubt that that was supposed to be a parody of America, Colonel Stars and Stripes, and he's got his dog that will sick your balls. I think... It was kind of lazily written, though. That's the joke. Really, he's hyper-violent, but he represents America. Why write him like this unless, you know, you're making a joke about America and fundamental Christians and being violent and, you know, all these kinds of things. Well, why is he here? Let's be that blunt. Why is Jim Carrey here? Why did they get him? What does he accomplish by being in this story? I can't tell you. I can tell you, I think what they're attempting to do is, because I see so many echoes of the first film here, so many beats replayed, you already called it out, Stuart. He's the big daddy figure. He just doesn't work as well. He is training kick-ass, he's going on fights with kick-ass the way Big Daddy did, and he is martyred in this film like Big Daddy. But the difference is, the last film was so cohesive. All the characters' plots intertwined. Hit Girl, Kick-Ass, Red Mist, they were one story. And so because of that, we spent so much time with Big Daddy that when they burn up Nicolas Cage, it's still, watch this movie a dozen times, it still saddens me that he goes out. Here, they're trying to replay that beat. They bring in a named star to play a similar role of a guy who is really violent against criminals, and then they kill him because of Red Mist again, or Chris D'Amico, and the problem is, because this story is so fragmented, we have three parallel stories. We have Hit Girls that we've kind of talked about, we got Kick-Asses, and then we got Chris's, which we need to talk about. It doesn't have the same impact, but they're trying to do the same thing. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you, Artie. The pacing here feels off. I feel like I'm watching three separate storylines in this film instead of one cohesive movie. There might be similar themes throughout this film, but it just never tightens the way that first one did with all its different characters. And again, they could have helped themselves so much more by having Kick-Ass already joining this team at the beginning of this movie, Mindy already being in high school, or maybe not even in the picture yet. We don't even know where she's at. And they could have form this relationship between Jim Carrey and Dave, but I don't see it, so who cares when he gets killed? This cast has got to get whittled down. Somebody's got to die. I just, I didn't know until they were killing him what they were doing, and then when I found out, I wasn't happy. You're never going to convince me that they needed to change this beginning. I like the beginning too much to see Hit Girl as Hit Girl, but the one thing that really bothers me with these three separate stories is the way it's edited, because it's almost like channel flipping. They'll show us two minutes of a scene and then two minutes of a different scene with a different character. And then we cut back to the first scene. You could tell that these were probably scripted and definitely filmed as contiguous scenes, but they're just doing it in this ADD manner where we never get to settle in with a character. We're going to hop over to Mindy. We're going to hop over to Chris. We're going to hop over to Dave. We're going to hop over to Mindy. They don't want us to forget about any of these characters, but by the same token, it really makes this pacing feel off throughout the whole film. Yeah. Well, Chloe Moretz, she was giving an interview, and she said they 
actually had to go back and rewrite some scenes for her to integrate her more into this film. So I wonder if that's what some of the clunkiness is, is they had to go back and really to develop her character and fit these scenes in somewhere. But yeah, there's definitely some issue with the editing, with the pacing here. I think what it is, is the fact that they're not all working on the same problem. It's fine that they're in different areas. I mean, look at something like Christopher Nolan, where you have 40 different characters. They're all unified by one plot. You can have a million different people, but there's one thing that connects them all in the web. Here, her cheerleading tryouts have nothing to do with Chris trying to kill Kick-Ass and not being able to find him. That's what's so bizarre. Kick-Ass is out there. Other people on the street are running up and beating him up for YouTube hits, but this guy can't find him to punish him. It's strange to me that they can't make this one story with many spokes. I think that's the model you want to have here, but it does feel like three different movies cut into one. Well, I'd go with Chris D'Amico not fighting Kick-Ass because, first of all, Kick-Ass went underground for two years, stopped existing, and Chris, we find out, has been moved to Long Island and his mother has become very controlling, trying to keep him out of doing anything. And this is our third story with McLovin back again. I haven't seen him in anything since the first Kick-Ass. I'm glad to see they got him back and that he's still able to hone this impotent rage. Fright Night. Oh, that's right. God, I <laughs> repressed that shit. What? You recommended it. No, but I, oh, I was upset with the Evil Ed representation in it. Okay, well, to be settled soon. <laughs> but he's back, and what an arc this character goes on. I'm with Dave. I'm with Mindy. I think Chris has the weirdest, weakest of the three storylines. They needed to cut a lot of this out, and the source material, it, it's played for more parody. He, you know, he goes over to Asia because he wants to be like the evil Batman, and all these ninjas, they're just bilking him out of all of his fortune to give him training. They're like, oh, if you want to learn this move, it's going to cost you another $10,000. And it's kind of funny. Here, they needed to fast-forward his arc and get him to the motherfucker role a lot quicker, get to his plan a lot quicker. They try to play a lot of this comedy. He goes and he tries to rob this convenience store and it doesn't even have a security camera, so he can't even go viral. You know, he should have been in the shadows and then his plot comes out later on. I I just feel this is the weakest part of the film. Even more basic. I mean, it starts off and his mother, who I forgot he had a mother. She, She was like in a scene in the first one, but it was so much about Chris and his dad that when this mother shows up, who's like an extra from Jersey Shore... Yeah, this seemed like a different mother than what I remember. I guess she didn't speak at all in that last film. Now we have the nanny. Right. And he kills her. And, I mean, his mother was well endowed. When he takes her S&M gear, dresses up and calls himself the motherfucker, I think if you're going to do that, you're going to dress in your mom's clothes and call yourself motherfucker, you need to imply an Oedipal complex to start with. I'm right there with you. I thought, you know, again, in the comic, he just kind of takes that name to sound badass. We have Kick-Ass, now we have the motherfucker. Here, introducing her mom and that he's the one killing her, I I did think there was going to be some actual motherfucking going on. I think it's a slight revision. I think we're supposed to think that in some way, because this character's regressed, that you could see him as as having this complex, I guess. But you're right. In context of the first movie, where he was only seeking approval from his father, and we didn't even notice the mother, it feels weird. But I guess that's what's happened in the last two years. He's gone from one to the other. He does take her anal beads. <laughs> that was a good joke. That was... And also in this movie, we the only family Chris is left with when he accidentally kills his mom is 
Javier, played by John Leguizamo, back after Land of the Dead, and I think Land of the Dead might have been the last time I've seen him. Yeah, but you know what? I like this John Leguizamo. I never really cared for his earlier parts in career, but I actually think he's one of the stronger elements that have been added here. We're, we need to see a positive influence in Chris's life, someone that is a moral compass to kind of tell him he's going a little too crazy. And I think, look, Legozama is the right one here. He's the limo driver, essentially. He's seen a lot of bad stuff, and he knows that Chris has the potential to rise above it, but uh, not when he's putting on that outfit. But he also knows the limits that Chris, you know, there's this uncle in prison who's taken over the mob since Chris's father has died. Uncle Ralph, and he's like, you got to be careful. You don't want to piss him off. And, you know, we're going to see that later on. But he, he's all, yeah, he is the Jiminy Cricket, if you will, of the mob. Yes. I, I like that he's referred to as the Alfred, which, of course, pisses off Javier. Did you just call me the butler? But really, if you, you said, Jacob, in the comic, motherfucker wants to be Batman, and that's what this is. This is his Alfred, especially if you look at the Nolan trilogy. Motherfucker is trying to build up the same way Nolan's Batman built up, right? Yeah. Yeah, he even says in this he wants to be trained in MMA and learn all these fighting moves, just like Batman did in The Begins. <laughs> then he realizes that's too much work, and his superpower is he's rich as shit. I do love that. That That is a good joke. It's like, uh, I don't have to be strong. I can just hire henchmen. <laughs> yeah, and it, again, it's a mirroring thing. The, the movie doesn't feel tight, but the script structure is. I mean... As he's amassing his army, we have Chloe Moretz amassing her girl friends or whatever. We see Kick-Ass getting his justice forever. They're very self-conscious to show us that it's the same thing happening to all three of these characters. They have the same arc. It's just they don't feel like they're in the same movie. I do love that Chris is such a comic nerd that when he starts hiring these people, he goes completely to racial stereotypes and Javier's like, dude, man, no, don't do that. Genghis Carnage and Black Death. I do find that funny. You know, I would expect more inside comic book jokes. Most of that comes from Chris here, but I, I do find that funny. I'm glad that humor's here. It's it's one of the things that really excels in the comics is, you know, making fun of or making references to comic book nerds and all the different tropes you read in comic books. I, I did like that. That got a smile out of me. Not because it's racism is funny, but, you know, that is a history of comics. You know, you you have these different racial stereotypes, especially during World War II. The Mandarin. Yes, the Mandarin. Black Panther. You even have the Black Racer, who is like the Black Death here in, in DC. So, yeah. You, black Goliath. They just always put black in front of every black character's name. It's, yeah, it's a good lampooning. And I like that Javier's like, you can't have Mother Russia and Motherfucker on the same team. That doesn't work. It's some good PR. I mean, that Javier, you got to hold on to him. He's got some <laughs> PR skills there. Right. And unfortunately, that means that he's dead meat in a movie like this, that he's only holding Chris back from becoming the ultimate motherfucker and that it's this very strange turn as all the characters are turning and being betrayed he gets hit by uncle ralph i don't even understand this my only thinking because they keep talking about uncle ralph and how uncle ralph is trying to stay low and uncle ralph runs the mafia right and the guy they got to play uncle ralph is a guy who I've seen in a bunch of stuff. I mean, the Resident Evil movies and some other stuff. I mean, he's not like a name. It's not like you got Christopher Walken, which would have been awesome. But the fact that there's this one scene, it's like that scene in True Romance where Motherfucker is facing down with Uncle Ralph and Uncle Ralph orders the hit on Javier. All I can think of is they're setting him up to be the big bad of part three. 
Yeah, it does seem like an unresolved storyline here. You would expect the motherfucker to kill Uncle Ralph by the end of this. You know, they have that confrontation in the prison, and motherfucker's like, I know what I got to do now. You've made everything perfectly clear. And, yeah, that means he turns around and kills him, right? But, no, it. it I guess we'll come back in two or three years, maybe, and talk about what happens to Uncle Ralph. Maybe. I, I just thought that they needed to have a character that was symmetrical to the other father figures of the other two characters. Hit Girl has Marcus... And Kick-Ass has his dad, who's thinking that his son's on drugs, who is not tapped into exactly what's going on, but knows that his son is falling into a bad influence by going out at night and beating up criminals. And so this was their attempt to give someone for Chris. But you kind of already had that with Javier. I, I don't know why you needed to have this guy as well. I think it's just messy. That, that's what I'm saying with Chris and the motherfucker. They needed to streamline his story. I didn't need a third character arc in this film. He needed to play the villain role. And villains, they show up at the end to cause havoc. Right, but I also think that it would have been nice if he was more in the background pulling the strings. If the crime that the heroes was banding together to fight was him and not Uncle Ralph. I mean, the prostitute human trafficker worked for Uncle Ralph. It makes D'Amico seem impotent. And the fact that every time he tries to do something, including rape night, bitch, he can't do it. It really robs him as being a villain. It gives him a little bit of chaos. I mean, a little bit, a hint, a whiff of the Joker from The Dark Knight, but without that danger. But I want to talk about that rape scene with Night Bitch, because that got a big laugh from our audience. But I couldn't help but think about Mark Miller, who just last week in an interview was asked about the number of times he has evil characters rape women in his comics. And he goes, I don't really think that it matters. I'm glad they changed this. In the comic, it is much darker. First of all, you have... The toxic mega cunts, they actually go after Katie because they thought she was dating Kickass because that's what Kickass ah, told everyone. So they went after Katie. That makes sense. And there's kids. They're like, hey, where's Katie's house? Over there. And then the motherfucker starts shooting children. And then they go and they gay. They actually do gang rape Katie. He doesn't have impotence in the comic. And then you have Mother Russia blowing up the cops. It's a scene. Yeah, Mark Miller is like, oh, well, that's just what you got to do to get comic book readers to perk up. They're so desensitized. It's it's no different than cutting off someone's head. Uh, I don't quite agree with you there, Mark. Well, yeah, let's just talk about it in general, because it sounds like, Arnie, you for sure, and Jacob, you sporadically have been laughing with this movie. I have not. I'm putting it out there right now. I did not laugh a lot in Kick-Ass 2. I feel like the jokes are the same as the last time, and that their attempts to up them have just been kind of shitting in the pool. It's more vulgar, it's more over the top, and then as we're reaching scenes like this rape, it's becoming, yeah, borderline offensive. I thought it was funny that he was impotent. I mean, I will admit I laughed during that. But after the fact, I just didn't feel good that the only thing that saves her from a rape is the fact that he is so impotent. And Yeah, and they still beat the shit out of her. Yeah. Is it better that he couldn't rape her, not because he didn't have the intent to rape her, but because he couldn't get it up? I guess it's funnier than if she'd actually been raped, but... It's still, I mean, these movies have always been dark. These movies have always gone to places other hero movies won't. That's why they're rated R. But I got a vibe when they went to her house and say she's taking the party upstairs. I'm like, oh, man, you know, earlier he says, I'm not going to kill the dog. I'm not that evil. But yet he's going to try to rape Night Bitch. 
I, and I think that's supposed to be the joke that, oh, I'm not going to hurt an animal, which we see a lot in society. You know, a dog gets killed, people flip out, but you got murder going on every day and people are kind of desensitized to it. But I will side with Mark Miller, I guess, because I got a reaction. I was repulsed by the thought of raping Night Bitch, whereas Mother Russia kills 10 cops and I'm laughing the whole time. So if he may be right. Killing people doesn't get a reaction. Cutting people's heads off doesn't get a reaction anymore. And that does. I think part of the problem, though, is rape. It, it's in most cases gender specific. It's a way to traumatize a woman. That's how we typically see it. There, There's, of course, Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. Or Shawshank Redemption. Lots of male on male prison rape there. But typically, I, I think people see it as a man writing this. Oh, here's just a way to traumatize a person. I think women internalize that more. And they're seeing that as males perpetuating this very specific type of violence that typically happens more to women. And that's harder to accept. Although this movie does make a lot of homosexual rape jokes, too. When Dave is dressed up like a pimp and the gang goes after him, they call him faggot and say they're going to make him suck his cock. Yeah, Hit Girl says when you're homophobic, it makes you sound so gay. So I think there's a lot of that just running through this movie. That scene, the fact that he can't get it up, yeah, big laugh. But it also gave me the ick factor. And I was really glad when I had the refreshing slaughter by Mother Russia afterwards, which was very funny. 50000 a day and worth every penny. Yeah, you know what? If the motherfucker earned his name by actually fucking his mom, if they went dark at the beginning, I think it'd be easier to accept. It just, it's all of a sudden, oh, here's a rape scene or an attempted rape. But yeah, then we go back to the joke. Here's Mother Russia taking all the cops and a very, you know, getting a lawnmower and putting it on the hood to go through the windshield and slice up cops. It, again, it's, yes, ultra-violent, but you're supposed to be laughing with it. You're supposed to be having fun. And it's weird to have just gone from a rape scene to that. What I didn't realize the first time I saw the movie was that this is setting up Mother Russia as the evil hit girl. This is, for Mother Russia, what hit girl killing all of Razul's drug dealers in Kick-Ass 1 is, showing how efficient and fun a killer this person is. And so when they square off at the end, Hit Girl versus Mother Russia, it all of a sudden clicked for me, ah, that's why Mother Russia got to kill 10 cops. Yeah, we do have to establish her. Yeah, I, with all these ineffectual supervillains and superheroes that, just, that don't do much, if the good guys have Hit Girl, you got to have someone on the bad guy side that's equally as strong. Yeah, she's the only one that matters really on this super bad team. Although, I don't know why. The one's an MMA fighter, one's a mob don, I mean, one's ex triad. I mean, they're, they all are killers before they join the team, but she feels like the only one that's maybe bloodthirsty. That they're hired muscle, they do what they're supposed to to get paid. She would do it just because she enjoys it. She ate her cellmate like that. But this is about the time it all starts to fall apart for all three storylines. The beat-up-a-night bitch is what takes it down for Dave. And Mindy also has a meltdown of her own when she tries out for dance team. When I saw this in the theater, not a huge crowd. It was a Friday afternoon. But all the laughs came from Mindy and her storyline. And I like her storyline. I wish it was more about this. I like this dance scene that the way that for her to get in the mood is to picture that she's hit girl fighting ninjas. I enjoy this stuff. I Yeah, I agree that this movie starts to fall apart as it goes along. But I'm always with Mindy. I'm always with her storyline. I'm enjoying that. Yeah, it's the only one I like. I'll just be that blunt. It's the only one that's interesting. That's the only one that's different. From last time. So much of this movie has done the same thing and just piled on more characters without establishing a relationship with them. She's the only one that I feel like 
oh, I see vulnerability here. Oh, it, yeah, I do kind of want her to get on the cheerleading tryouts. I do want her to have a nice date, even though I know when she's taken out in the forest, something's going to go bad. Something that I've never seen, because the theater where I'm screening this suddenly went black, and there's about three, four minutes that I don't know exactly what happened. Guys, what did happen to Mindy when she was out in the forest? Well, you find out that the whole date was a setup by the queen bee that felt spurned because Mindy got a better reaction out of the dance tryouts than her. And so they go and they all just ditch her. They bring her out in the middle of nowhere and reveal to her that she's a joke and they don't like her. And they all leave her in the middle of the forest to go walk home. Were you getting a Carrie vibe out of this? I know she's yeah. playing Carrie. We're doing that later. Yeah, I was going to say, we're going to see this exact same storyline done better in about a month or two, right? Hopefully. That's what I don't understand is that, yes, if you want to humiliate someone for overstepping their bounds, you publicly embarrass them. You dump pig's blood on them at prom. You don't take them in the middle of nowhere and then leave them. Okay, so it, it was what I thought had happened, had happened, because I could hear some of the audio but I couldn't see the visuals. She heard something in the woods, the lights went out, and then the lights came back on, and I saw that she was walking on the road and that Brooke and them had gotten in their cars and left her. So it was just literally, this was their way of putting her in her place. Yes. They could have been crueler. For a movie that has been so cruel, I would have thought that they would have enjoyed having a better prank here. But I do like the way this plays out. It's because Mindy's taken out there and she's like, this isn't where you go for a keg party. This is where you dump a body. And then she hears like branches snap and, and she's like, get back in the car. Yeah. Yeah. She's trying to be this girl on a date and trying not to be a bitch, but immediately tells her date, get back in the car. She's going to kick some people's ass. And then, yeah, what? And because you didn't see it, Stuart, it is public. There were like, 20 of the cool kids, or maybe more, as many extras as the film could afford, were there and all laughing at her. They're all going to laugh at you. Oh, wait, that's two months from now. Okay. Well, and, you know, they may have done this scene specifically for that. They may have known that she had the role of Carrie. Carrie was supposed to be out a long time ago. It shot a long time ago. I think it shot before this movie, so at least before some of the reshoots she's saying they had to do. So maybe this was written specifically to parody the fact that everyone would have thought that she was Carrie. Well, was this in the comic, Jacob? No, not this specific scene, no. I mean, there's this whole storyline about her trying to fit in with the cool girls, but no, not this specific scene. Yeah, because I was just getting a constant Carrie vibe, and you're right, Stuart. Carrie was supposed to come out in the spring. It's now coming out in October for Halloween. But yeah, I couldn't help but thinking, you said this is the only story you're liking, I can't help but feel this story's underdeveloped. It's not given the time to breathe. And I think if Chloe Grace Moretz is going to work in this kind of a mean girl story, it's going to work better in October than it works here because it just one dance tryout, love the dance tryout with the ninjas, but one dance tryout. And now instead of being a project, she's a pariah. Mm, I don't know. I also don't know how I feel about her revenge when she gets dressed up and goes to attack him with the six stick. Again, this is something they did for the film, not from the comic. I was wondering, how does Hit Girl resolve this? She can't go in there and kill him. Uh, I don't know if this is quite the, the resolution I was looking for. There had to be some kind of resolution, though. In the comic, she takes the Queen Bee and holds her over a building and threatens to kill her and says if she ever tries to upstage her or humiliate her again, that she really will. And after that, they're just all nice to her. I, I don't know if that's quite as satisfying either, but I don't know. Watching a bunch of teenage girls puke and shit their pants. I guess that's one way to go. Yeah, I know exactly how I feel about this. I don't like it a lot. 
for much of this movie, I've been sitting there going, you know, it's just not as funny as it used to be. And, you know, they've already kind of done this before. And when I see that this whole story arc that I have kind of like has just been leading up to a vomit and shit joke. Man, I'm pissed. Our audience had a huge laugh. I laughed. Brooke, of course, gets it worse. As there's, you get to see, it looks like chocolate pudding, but supposed to be diarrhea coming out of her underwear. Is this the first time we've had CGI shit in a film? <laughs> I'm sure it's not a first, but it's not what I wanted. I, I can just put it bluntly as that. I felt like the last Kick-Ass was so good about parroting superhero tropes, and it really had a point. And I think that it's hard to make a sequel to satire. I mean, I think that's what I'm finding out. Like Red 2 seems superfluous after they made a joke about old people, this whole movie feels unnecessary. And if it's all just so that they can make more vulgarity, it's just not for me. I feel like this storyline and this humor and all of this just aimed at a much more juvenile audience. Well, my thinking was, at first, I thought it was overkill. I thought... Her revenge should have been more psychological. It shouldn't have been, I'm going to assault you with a weapon, even if all the weapon does is make you puke and shit yourself. But I do like how when Marcus is confronting her and says, you could have really hurt those girls, her response is, yeah, I could have. Instead, I just gave them a tummy ache. I mean, yeah, her first response, it's the time she needs Dave. Dave's needed her this whole movie. After her humiliation is when she finally goes and talks to Dave, goes to his room and cries, and wants to cut their tongues out. This is the high road for Hit Girl. Which I think is a bit of the joke, I don't, you know, like you, Stuart, that it comes down to something as uncreative as a shit and puke joke. I don't know if that's satisfying, but I, yeah, I do get the joke that this is the high road to humiliate them in this, this awful, awful way. That's Hit Girl restraining herself. Like I said, I just don't see a lot of this kind of movie. I don't know if this is typical of, like, American Pie sequels or movies about teenagers. That There's a lot of bodily fluid jokes in them, yes. Yeah, bodily fluid jokes. When that enters a movie, usually that's when I turn it off. And meanwhile, in Chris's storyline, because of the night bitch assault, and really because of Mother Russia killing ten cops... Uh, and Jim Carrey. <laughs> Nobody remembers Jim Carrey. <laughs> Nobody did anything after Jim Carrey. It wasn't until the police were killed that the cops decided to arrest everybody in costume. Yeah, they tracked their IP addresses so they could go to their homes, and good or bad, they were arrested. And this, unfortunately, was way too foreshadowed for me, because Dave's dad finds his costume and knows he's kick-ass, and says it would have been better if you're on drugs, and Dave has this whole thing of, why, should I live your life? You're working out, you're unemployed, are you hoping to get a couple more years of nothing? Who's going to notice when you're gone? I'm like, okay, you just put a bullseye on his back. I know your dad is now dead in this movie. Probably before you can reconcile. I was wrong, they get to reconcile. But, yeah, his dad was killed right then. Everybody's dad dies in these movies. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of a superhero trope here. This seems like a much darker killing, though. When we see Chris's dad die, it's with the bazooka shooting him out of a skyscraper. Big Daddy, you know, it's Nicolas Cage, and it's a sad moment. It's an emotionally powerful moment, but he's got that weird scream, and, you know, they had built up, they had earned that death. Here, I mean, this is just a brutal prison death, and again, like that rape scene, it, it goes very dark, and I don't know if this film has earned going as dark as it does at times. It feels like that the source material, the last time, they were able to find a way to make it mainstream. That even though it was this Mark Miller 
kind of thing, they were able to make it Hollywood. This time it feels like they've made more of Mark Miller's vision. And this is straight out of the comic. Yeah, it feels like they've made what you're describing with every now and then cutting in some Mean Girls 3 segments. And Mark Miller was very involved in the production of this, and he was for including the rape and the killing of the dog. And it was uh, the director, and actually... Christopher Mintz plots. He said in an interview before the movie was being filmed, they cut out the rape scene, thank God. So <laughs> I think everybody but Mark Miller was fighting against certain elements. I was really surprised with this death. I think one of the reasons it seems so dark is it's just two thugs who kill Dave's dad. It wasn't a toxic mega cunt. I thought this was time for another toxic mega cunt to shine. They were hired by him, but yes, they're not comic booky. They look like dudes that really would serve time. They're really scary looking. Yeah, we know that we know that Uncle Ralph, he could pull all the strings in this prison, and that's what I assumed is, which was weird because the motherfucker kind of goes off on bad terms, and I, I assumed that he used his Uncle Ralph connection to get this killing done. Yeah. I mean, we see the guards just leave the room, and yeah, it, it is very dark. I thought these were different prisons. I think Uncle Ralph is in, like, a hardcore prison, and Dave's dad, he wasn't charged with anything. He was in a holding cell. It's different. I think it was supposed to be... Again, maybe a callback to The Dark Knight when the guy's in the holding cell with the bomb inside of him that releases the Joker. This felt like it was in the actual police station, not in Rikers or what have you. It does feel like it's trying to be Nolan. I do feel like the motto specifically is going after Nolanverse at this point. The whole idea of moving it to the cops now, attacking the citizens, and sort of the mass chaos that's being generous. Everyone's either putting on a superhero outfit or trying to beat them down. Down. It feels like the whole city, no one dresses normal anymore. They're all a superhero or a supervillain. Including Todd. Now, Todd was kind of left out because Marty, Marty and Todd were the two friends from the last one, and they're back here, and Marty, not knowing Dave was kick-ass, dressed up as Battle Guy, and they met on Justice Forever, which led to a kind of cruel abandoning of their friend Todd to the point where they're up on a roof and they're like, Todd's still texting me. What a loser. Because he doesn't dress up. And Todd is kind of uncreative. It's a funny scene. He's like, I could be kick-ass man or kick-ass or, you know, he comes up with all these derivative names. His suit is the negative of kick-ass's suit. And then he's like, his final epiphany is I will be the ass kicker. I mean, he... Come on, come up with some more creativity, bro. But this is funny because, again, of the comic books, right? I mean, you have Spider-Man, and so we also have Scarlet Spider. You have Captain America, and then you have Patriot. You have Iron Man and War Machine. When you have a hit hero, immediately you just start making doppelgangers of them and female versions of them, right? Spider-Man, Spider-Woman, Hulk, She-Hulk, Red Hulk. So the fact that there's Ass Kicker is funny to me as a fan of multimedia comics and comic characters, but yeah, it also does make Todd look like an ultra douche. They set him up here. I mean, I had no doubt once he's humiliated before because he's not a superhero, now he's trying to be a superhero and he's humiliated as well. I have no doubt who's going to be the betrayer for Kick-Ass's identity when it comes time for Act 3. And it's, of course, it's going to be him turning to Christopher Mintz-Platz and crashing the VIP with who Dave really is. Doesn't Todd get off a little easy for yes. this? I mean, he he does it accidentally. He doesn't even realize that the toxic mega cunts are being serious about being evil. He thinks it's just, you know, dress up and make believe. 
and playing, and then he finally realizes what's going on. But in the last movie, I felt that Kick-Ass really caused Big Daddy's death, because he brought Red Mist into Big Daddy's lair, and he gets confronted by that with Hit-Girl, and he has to face that, and he gets beaten mercilessly and tortured because of it. Todd says, oh, that's Kick-Ass's dad, which gets the dad killed, and Todd never has to pay a price. Well, no. Maybe in Kick-Ass 3 that ever comes. I did find that weird. I mean, he even follows that up. Oh, that's Kick-Ass's dad. You're not going to do anything bad about with that information, though. Like, he's he's very naive. I feel like there should be some kind of price once Kick-Ass finds out in perhaps an eventual sequel. But this leads to the Kick-Ass finale, because after the dad's dead, I find it weird that they just jump to the funeral, and I'm like, well, that takes a few days, and then voiceover. The next three days passed in a haze. That's because you wanted to get to the funeral without explaining why nobody did shit for three days? But... But don't we, too? I, I feel like this movie's been all over the place. It's time to start bringing these three lines together, and l- let's get to the climax. That's how I'm feeling as I'm watching this. And it does lead to, perhaps, the best action scene of the movie. What? when di- Come on. I love Hit Girl on the top of the van. Terrible! Terrible! Terrible effects, but good action. Terrible effects. Good choreography. You know, just having seen Wolverine on a bullet train... Mm. Much better effects here. This obvious green screen. You know, there is some great choreography where she's climbing up the guy to get into the car as he's being dragged, holding on to the door. I mean, there are some great moments, but man, I wish there was a better budget for this film. I do, too. That's the only thing I can ding it with. But the camera work, the editing, the choreography, it's all first rate here. The music, you can't ding this. The way the camera moves all around that van, the only thing you can ding is the green screen. And yes, I'm an effects snob and I noticed it, but because I was so focused on Chloe Grace Moretz getting back into the role of Hit Girl and her great lines and her ass-kicking, I was so into the scene. I think that's truly what it is, is that you're feeling like it's great that she's there saying cunt again and pube face and doing all this. I just think, oh, this movie couldn't think of anything else to do. It's bad. This is a bad, bad scene. It looks bad. I can't believe you're giving it a pass. I believe this scene stands right there with when Superman gets his powers back and asks General Zod to step outside. That's how much this scene rocks. Wow. Okay, well, we saw different scenes. Yeah, for me, nothing ever tops the original Hit Girl scene where she takes out those muggers and the motorcycle chase with her dad. I mean, for me, that that is, as far as the action go, that's the highlight for me. This, it has its moments, but it looks so cheap that I can never get into it. I think this movie is operating under a serious delusion at this point where she's got all these bad justifications for how she's supposed to be doing this and that he should take his dad's anger and not grieve at a funeral but put on a kick-ass outfit and go beat up thugs and like really this use it yeah this is use i it. just think this movie has gone from not very good to pretty terrible at this point and it's at this scene oh. it's at this scene no this scene in the van no. is, it's, that's where it's going straight down like plummeting We have seen so many terrible films. I can't believe you're calling this terrible. This is great action. This is, I mean, after Wolverine, where it's going to end in this ridiculous big fight at the end because that's what comic book movies do, and you give that a pass and you're calling this terrible? Yes, I think that machine was much better than this. I think this scene is terrible, yes. Uh, I disagree. I think this is much better than what we got at the end of Wolverine. I think this works better than the ninjas spearing Wolverine in the back. Well, I'm I'm not going to go with you there. There, it might at times surpass what Wolverine did, but uh, it, again, for me, it comes down to the cheapness of how yeah. it looks. If they were able 
to throw a, you know a couple more million or whatever it would cost to make this look better i could go with you arnie it just the the bullet holes coming through the roof everything just looks so bad here i know and you're the one that usually dings these things the fact that you are so on board for what looks so obviously flimsy is stunning to me i don't even know what to say it's just the staging and the choreography. The fact that those bullet holes become her finger holes into the roof. It's creative. I like that, Artie. It's just the overall look ruins it for me. It takes me out of the scene. There are moments I like. That's one of them, too, where she how she uses the bullet holes. She's climbing up the guy, like I said, the whole thing, swinging on the door. It's just I'm, I can't fully get invested in the scene because it looks bad. I just stopped noticing how bad it looked. There were a couple shots where it's like, e, but the rest of it... Really went with it. Happy to see Hit Girl back. I thought she was sidelined far too long in this film. Really happy for this. And then we just kind of race to the end. You're Seriously, you're okay with that scene after this quote-unquote awesome action scene where they pull over and they debate whether to kill the tumor or not. And she's got this laughable, I mean, I mean, literally, there are people around me laughing as she's trying to say, I'm not a little girl and never was, and this is not a bad thing, and I'm... What kind, how far is her head up her ass at this point for her to say that she's in the right to do this? I'm on her side. She was raised by Big Daddy for 12 years. I think she has been brainwashed. Whether you agree with her or not is not the point. It's that she has been brainwashed and this is who she is. Yeah, she believes it and I believe that she believes it. She was and is a girl. And I just, I find this delusional that she can say that this is who her identity was because she was shaped at a small age by a crazy man. I just, I can't believe that the movie is buying its own shit at this point. I can. It's while she knows. She knows who she is. She is Hit Girl. She is an assassin hero, a murderous vigilante. This is all she knows. She doesn't fit in at school. Could she be reprogrammed to just gush over Union J and that'd be her biggest focus. Obviously, we kind of saw a little bit of that. But this is who she is. This is what she enjoys. I'm happy to see her back in the saddle. I'm happy to see her self-actualized. Yeah, what I like about Hit Girl here is that they they kind of, again, do the opposite of what they typically do with the female superhero. You know, we expect her, re- when she gets her revenge on the cool girls at school, she whores herself up. She puts on the short dress and the makeup and the hair before she beats them up. And that, you know, that's what, oh, I could be feminine and kick-ass at the same time, masculine at the same time. Here, I like that she stays in that role. No, I might be a girl, but I'm going to stay this ruthless killer. I'm not going to night bitch up my costume and sex it up. I It's still purple leather like you'd expect an eight-year-old girl to wear, and I'm going to kill people in the most violent way possible. I, I, I kind of like that they don't ever feminize her here or at least that happens but she reverts back that that is not the way for her to be empowered is by being able to be sexy and strong no her empowerment is to be strong i just don't buy this at all i think it's ridiculous you know jim carrey refused to do press for this movie on moral reasons and i get it after a scene like this i wouldn't want to defend this movie either oh oh but he he cashed his check without with no problems of morality yeah i didn't see him donating that to victims at columbine but he wasn't in the scene who knows when the scene was made and i agree did he see the first film well i like like the the first film i i agree yes but the violence is still played as entertainment it's an ultraviolet film and that's part of the fun of it i think i mean having seen that first film i don't think this film isn't going to shock you any more than that first one would have no But the first movie didn't conclude that it was the right thing to do. 
And this movie does. This movie concludes it's the right thing for children to go slaughter people, and that's totally fine. I think the first movie does, too. I think the climax of the first movie says what they did is right by going to Boss D'Amico's house and blowing him up with a bazooka. This movie plays that same beat. It's no different. No, they finish what they started in this one. And here we have a character declaring, I've never been a child. This is the way I am. And that's the way it's going to be. I just, I think it's awful. I like it. I think it's right for the character. Yeah, it's true to the character. If she had some sudden epiphany that I'm going to use, you know, non-lethal tactics, I'm not going to buy that from Hit Girl. There's nothing about her arc that has earned that. Well, then what did she learn by being the teenage girl? That she is Hit Girl. That it is all about becoming who you need to be. It's about heroes don't wear masks. It's that Hit Girl isn't the mask in the purple outfit she puts on. It's the girl underneath. That's what she learned when she tried to try real life out and realized she can't. It's not in her. And you're comfortable with that self-diagnosis? Absolutely. It's what I want for her. I love her as Hit Girl. I don't want to see her smelling bath salts and watching One Direction. Well, I do think that, you know, that was an extreme for comedic sake that they showed. I do think that there's, uh, you know, an in-between here. And I don't know. There's a lot of dialogue here at the end as we go into the to the final battle here about the real world and whether they're helping the real world or they're not living in the real world. They could have found a more realistic approach here than this ridiculous declaration. There could have been a different arc for her. And I would have wanted something else other than this girl committing to this this lifestyle. This is exactly what I want. This is exactly what I want for that character, and I like to see her do that in time for this big final fight, where instead of waiting for the bad guy to do something, I love that they go to his lair, and he's so shocked that his whole goal is to kill Kick-Ass, and Kick-Ass shows up. I always wonder how they found each other's lair in this. Justice Forever had a secret lair. Motherfucker had a secret lair. They tracked IP addresses, I believe. Okay, maybe it's IP. (laughs) Isn't that the answer for everything in the internet age? IP address. Yeah, I think so. This is where I think the budget really kicked in, because at least in the comic, you know, in this film, they talk about, we're going to destroy New York. We got these fertilizer bombs. Well, yeah, this big climax takes place in Times Square. It's a full-on riot between bad guys and good guys, and there's explosions going on. I figured when I saw this that the climax was going to take place in the evil air. Okay, these are budget constraints here. We don't have the money to film this in Times Square or in Canadian Times Square and have this massive explosive fight. Uh, That's a shame. I would have loved to see that. I would have loved that escalation. Even if it is Canadian Times Square like they used in The Incredible Hulk with a couple of special shots or CGI inserts of billboards, I would have loved that. But yeah, this is a $28 million movie. Take what we can get, which is this ending, which it does feel cheap. It feels very lackluster. Every one of the Justice Forever heroes who has a name gets their one baddie to beat. But none of this is very exciting, especially coming after the great van chase. (laughs) Uh, You know, I'm going to stand by that motherfucker. That's that's fine. I'm I'm glad you enjoyed it. (laughs) I. I am a sucker for some of these heroic moments when Kick-Ass and Hit-Girl walk in and they're like, we're going to take you down or like just the two of you. And then you get the doors opening and you see this army of people that have decided to stand up against evil. There's a part of me, you know, 
Chris does say we are the real 1%, and we see a lot of the evil here. It's the mafia, the people with the money, the rich people. You know, we had you, Remembering Tommy, that husband and wife duo, and you, you get a sense that a lot of the heroes here are from the 99%, so I don't know. There's something about that final reveal that it does swell up a little bit. This fight isn't very satisfying, but I do like at least when they all storm the castle, so to say. I was wondering how they were going to top the bazooka because, you know, that was the what we talked about in the first movie. They had a bazooka. How are you going to use the bazooka? It's hanging on the wall. You introduce it in the first act. It's got to go off as the last shot. Well, how are they going to top themselves in the movie that keeps going bigger and bigger and bigger? It's the shark. It's the fact that motherfucker has invested in having a shark tank because that's what evil villains like to do and they don't know whether it's been alive or not it's just been laying at the bottom of the tank this whole time i do like the fact that all of this silliness climaxes at least with the shark going off i think that was the right way to at least cap it even if i'm not totally into this end battle oh i'm into the two duels i'm into dave versus chris and i'm into hit girl versus mother russia it's all the rest which should be spectacular because it's a massive riot yeah. that lets me down. Hit Girl versus Mother Russia. I love that Hit Girl is finally facing off against somebody who's her equal. I mean, in the last movie, Father D'Amico did beat the living shit out of her, but it wasn't a fair fight. I mean, as soon as he got her, it was over. Here, this is a fun little battle between the two women. And the fact that Mother Russia is seemingly so unstoppable and Hit Girl's trying everything. You can just see the exasperation in her. I do like the resolution. You know, you talk about Chekhov's bazooka from Kick-Ass. Well, here they did something similar. They had this mysterious needle with some kind of substance and were led to believe that it's like cyanide. It's something to commit suicide before you're tortured and killed. That's how they play it up. So right when Hit Girl's about to, you know, Mother Russia, she has this great finishing wrestling move where she puts your head between your her legs and snaps your neck. Hit Girl pulls out this shot, and of course, Mother Russia thinks she's going to inject her with something poisonous, and injects Hit Girl. And it's an adrenaline shot. And I love how it just goes total cartoon at this point, with the eyes, just, the pupils going huge, and she gets this huge shock. We get all, all these weird CGI effects that she's picking up pieces of glass and stabbing her. It, it goes full-on cartoon here, but I'm loving it. I'm smiling it. This is what I would expect from a kick-ass movie. It's a scene from Crank, isn't it? <laughs> It, it does seem like something that would be out of crank, yes. This is more hyper-cartoon than the last one, right? I recognize that it's structurally very similar and that certainly the last movie wasn't total realism. Yeah, there were jetpacks in that one. But, I mean, the idea that all of these nerds in their spandex could take down hired mercenaries, they're the ones winning during all of this. During all of these fights, when I look at the final totals... The nerds are standing, and all the bad guys are on the ground. Yeah, I mean, it's a little too easy there. Yeah, and that's what, that's what I'm saying. I don't, you know, I, I got excited when I saw the build-up for this big fight. It's not satisfying. I Like you, Arnie, I enjoy Kick-Ass versus Motherfucker and Mother Russia versus Hit-Girl. I, I enjoyed those segments, but the rest, yeah, I wanted something more satisfying. And Motherfucker versus Kick-Ass, like the last one when they squared off with their little slap fight, it's not a very good fight. I do like that they have this one-upsmanship. You're going to pay for killing my father. Well, you blew my father up with a bazooka. I mean, it's a dad for a dad, or as I guess Michelle Pfeiffer would say, a die for a die. But the fact that, yeah, it ends with him falling and kick-ass, he's playing the hero. He's going to not let motherfucker die. 
and motherfuckers, I'll be an evil Jesus. That was kind of funny, yeah, though, because you yeah. always see that. You always see them strike that pose as they fall. It They make it look so cool in the movies, so of course he'd want to go out like that. Then he has a change of heart, like midway down, he realizes, wait, I don't want to actually die. I just want to be frozen in this moment forever. Mm-hmm. And I knew he'd land in the shark tank. The question I had was, would the shark be alive or dead? Right, yeah. I think once he was in the tank, you knew it had to. It just wouldn't be satisfying for the shark to have been dead. You just, you had to have the shark go off, and I'm glad they did. And the post credit scene shows he survived. He's lost his legs below the knees. He might have lost some fingers. I believe he lost his dick. Yes. I think he says, I don't have a yes. dick here. Yeah. Not that it makes any difference. <laughs> yeah, he couldn't use it in the first place. But did you want him dead, or do you want him back dismembered for the sequel? I don't want a sequel. I want this to stop. <laughs> they want to stop. I mean, that's the thing. All these people are like, this has to end. You know we can't do this anymore. There's all this sort of weird pomo kind of talk about this must not be anymore, and it's not right. And they're trying to pay the lip service like they have moral principles here that that the team disbands and and yet they're still like putting making iron suits and and she's going off to be hit girl but she's leaving the city that has the criminals i i don't understand anything in this end yeah no that's the irony it's this whole thing about how superheroes don't work in the real world because masks don't work and you know these poorly stitched suits don't work if you want superheroes in the real world then you got to build fucking armor I think that's what the irony is. Here's how I took this, but I do agree it's confusing. I took it as, because the cops arrested all the capes, that they can't suit up anymore. They will be arrested. They killed people that night. They have to hide. They have to go underground completely. But that doesn't mean they have to stop being heroes. What this whole movie is about, its theme, is self-actualization. And Dr. Gravity realized, yeah, he could pretend he's a physics professor and put on this outfit and pretend to have a baseball bat that can lift things when, in fact, it just has spikes. But when he's a real hero is when he sees a mugging and he's not in a mask and he takes off. And Dave can play kick-ass and put on this wetsuit and go on patrols, but what he really needs is to be self-sufficient and realize if you're going to fight, you need your own muscle. You can't be like Chris D'Amico and just have people who are strong around you. And Hit Girl... Well, she used her stepfather's gun to kill six guys at the in the van, so she had to get out of town or she was going to go to jail. Well, what's weird is, I don't know if they do get, do a sequel to this, I'm not sure where they're going to go, because, at least in the comic book, I think it's going to depart radically, or maybe they'll catch it up real quick. You get this big fight in Times Square, the riot police show up, they arrest everyone, good and bad. You know, the, the citizens, though, they realize that Justice Forever was a good thing, so they start chanting their name kick ass and a few of the other superheroes get away but hit girl she gets arrested and it ends with her going in jail and kick ass three as far as the comics go they there are a couple issues in and the whole storyline thus far is we got to break hit girl out of jail so i i don't know where they're gonna go maybe they'll catch that up real quick come up with some other reason for mindy to be in jail if they do another sequel but it, it seems like they've gone in a different direction with these films at least it wouldn't take much to put her in jail. Maybe she comes back to apologize to Marcus and Marcus arrests her. I mean, that would be a nice, dramatic twist. But, yeah, the real head-scratcher, though, is that suit of armor, right? He's got schematics and this, like, iron helmet or titanium. It's really shiny metal, kick-ass helmet. And 
I don't understand. Is he going to be Iron Man now? Is it just to protect him so that he doesn't get concussed when he's punched? Is it just to reduce his own mobility? I'm confused. He's trying to get buff enough so that he can finally be a real superhero and not have a homemade costume. I think that's what we're meant to imply. But it's as confusing as that ending of that last Iron Man movie, where we don't know if there's a sequel or not, and we'd like to go out having a moral principle and telling people the lessons that they don't need to emulate us, but we want to open the door for making more money. So it's garbled and it's bad. Well, I think I already know from Stuart, but Jacob, do you recommend Kick-Ass 2? (laughs) This suffers from a lot of the symptoms that all sequels suffer from. They try to repeat a lot of the same jokes. They don't quite work as well. I mean, they try to emulate a lot of the things that worked with the first Kick-Ass. Having themes. I like when superhero movies have themes. They make them much better films. Whenever a movie has a theme, an action film, you know, whatever genre film, when they try to go for something deeper, it makes it a better film. So we had the father-son or daddy-daughter thing in that first one here. It's about who are you, what you getting along with the group. There are the themes there, and I like that. I wish the script was tighter here. I like this film mostly as a hit girl film. I, I like watching her journey through high school and becoming this teenage girl and giving into Union J. I, I think that's the strongest part of this film. That's what got the most positive reaction out of the audience when I saw this. That's where almost all the laughs came from was that storyline. I feel like the editing or the script or whatever, it's just, it's so disjointed at times when I have to go to the motherfucker storyline. I, uh, I don't really want to watch him. I want to go back to that one I was enjoying. The, 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 there could have been a lot of editing here. There could have been a lot of tightening up, what I guess I'm saying. I think the Hit Girl storyline is the best part. The other stuff, it, it's mediocre. It's okay. It loses momentum as it goes along. I give it a mild recommend, though. I, I think it's still an enjoyable film. Seeing it as an ultra-violent superhero film, it still works on that level. It's just not as strong as the one that came before. But mild recommend for Kick-Ass 2. Stuart? Yeah, uh, you can't make a sequel to satire. I mean, that's what I'm learning this summer. Red 2 and now Kick-Ass 2. Two movies in their initial carnation I liked. Recommended. Two movies in their sequels that I just don't see a point to. You, you've made a great satire of superheroes. You can't then act like it's a regular superhero. You demean the jokes that you're trying to tell. And because they know that, they go bluer. They go more vulgar. And that doesn't work for me. You know, making it more extreme, showing us flows of shit, saying cunt again and again and again, talk about being desensitized. I'm over it. I didn't laugh during this movie. And I think that it just really wasn't working except when they had that Mindy storyline. I agree with you. That was interesting. I wish that it had been the whole movie because the rest of it is a strong not recommend. Texas Chainsaw 3D. A good day to die hard. G.I. Joe Retaliation. Man of Steel, Iron Man 3, Star Trek Into Darkness, Red 2, The Wolverine, Pacific Rim, World War Z, Jesus Christ, this year's been hard on me. (laughs) (laughs) We have gone to the movies a lot this year. I think double any year we've gone prior. (laughs) You want to know the worst part? It's not going to the theaters. I like going to the theaters usually, but it's bothered me that... When people ask me, what's the favorite movie I've reviewed this summer? It was like, eh, Pacific Rim, kinda, sorta. Still had some big problems, no good characters, but it's the best movie we've seen. Do you know how happy I am to have a movie I can truly sit here and say I unequivocally recommend? Unequivocally! This is the first movie of 2013 that I don't have huge fucking problems with. (laughs) 
Seriously. I think that's saying a lot about Hollywood when it's a sequel to a, a minor superhero film that's the strongest. I, I don't think I totally agree with you, but I don't disagree with you. It is one of the stronger films this year. Yeah, I mean, I'm talking about the stuff we reviewed specifically. I've seen some indie drama stuff. And yeah, yeah, I was about to say, I've seen a, a lot of great movies this year, but we've covered none of them. So, yes. No, no, yeah, I agree. But really, this is your favorite above everything that we've seen, including Evil Dead. Absolutely, because this is the one I sat back and just had a great time with. You want to know why I had to go back? Because I got so into the movie, I didn't have any fucking notes. I had to go see it again, because I couldn't talk about it other than to just be effusive and gush about how fun a time I had. How much I laughed, how much the action rocked, how much the score rocked. Now, it's a sequel to one of my favorite films of all time. Is this one of my favorite films of all time? No. Is it as strong as Kick-Ass 1? No. But it's a damn good follow-up. It feels of a whole. It is a sequel. It has some of those problems. And I don't disagree with what you guys said. Hit Girl, my favorite of the three stories, and I think they should have spent more time. Anytime Chloe Grace Moretz is not on the screen, you miss her. And Dave's story, it does feel lost in all of this. The editing, a little disjointed. I wish the stories weaved together as well as the first. I wish every movie was as magical as Kick-Ass 1. I'm not going to get that from every movie, but I'm going to get a kick-ass too good time out of this movie. I like the performances, the score... Some of the effects were a little weak. It's the result of the budget, and I'm not going to give it a pass just because it had a low budget. A low-budget film's a low-budget film. I'm not going to say, go see Sharktopus. That cost 50 cents just because it cost 50 cents. But this movie is the first movie that I could just purely enjoy and not go, God, these character developments suck. God, this action is awful. God, that is just a stupid ending for this character. Stuart, all those things you say about bad endings for Hit Girl unequivocally disagree with you. I think this is right for that character. This is the kick-ass sequel to Kick-Ass that I wanted. I wish Matthew Vaughn had been there. Had Matthew Vaughn been there, this might be the first sequel. I don't have any franchise, maybe Iron Man and Avengers, that become top echelon films of all time for me. But Kick-Ass 2, solid film, fun time. Go fucking see it. See it in theaters, because I want Kick-Ass 3. I want to see Hit Girl again. I want to see Dave again. I don't think we're going to. I think they barely eked by to this sequel. We're all kind of scratching our heads that they got this sequel made. But seriously, do yourself a favor and go see Kick-Ass 2. Maybe they'll sell it to Corman this time. They keep, you know, passing the buck here. You know, maybe we'll get the uh, Roger Corman version, like uh, his Fantastic Four or Generation X. You know who would make it? It's Fox. Because Mark Miller is now working at Fox, and he's their consultant, and on these all these X films. If anybody's going to get it to happen, it'll be him, and he is employed by Fox now. I could see it being directed DVD. That seems to be the wave of the future for sequels no one asked for. But let us know what you thought of Kick-Ass 2. First, go see it in theaters. Support this movie. Support the best movie now playing as reviewed this year. According to Arnie. According to Arnie, and <laughs> I think Jacob might have agreed. I, I'm about 75% with you. I might have liked Pacific Rim a little bit more, but yeah. So let us know if you agree. Come to our forums. The link is at nowplayingpodcast.com. And you know what, though? Even though this is the best movie we've reviewed in 2013, to me and Jacob with the exception of Pacific Rim so far... There's still one I think is going to best it, and we're reviewing it in about a week and a half, and that's The World's End. 
Yeah, I agree with you. Summer 2013 hasn't had a whole lot of strong Hollywood filmmaking. And a lot of the things that even I've given recommends to, they haven't been loves. They're not films that I adored. But I think we have a really good shot. A week from Friday, we are getting to the world's end, the capper to the Blood and Ice Cream trilogy, and I have all chips laid in that that's going to be my one for this year. I don't expect a now playing review this year. Well, with the exception of maybe Scorsese's movie, I don't know that there's going to be one that I'm going to love as much as you seem to love Kick-Ass 2. But I really think that World's End is going to be great. Yes, and you can hear that review as part of our now playing Fall 2013 Donation Drive. The first review of that series... Shaun of the Dead was released to donors last Friday, this Friday, Hot Fuzz, next Friday, The World's End, and then, because we always like to do five movies for the $10 donation, $2 per movie, we're going to do two more movies. One is Paul, which is, if you didn't pay attention to behind the scenes, you might think it's part of the same series as the other three, as it stars Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, and is kind of a lampooning of Spielberg alien films. And then Attack the Block, a film I haven't seen yet, but it's made by the same studio, has a lot of the same people behind the scenes, friend of Edgar Wright made it, and has Nick Frost in it. That is our silver level donation for a donation of $10 or more between now and October 31st of 2013. For those who want to support our show even more, $25 or more, we normally do three podcasts. These are for those who just are really loyal for the show and big supporters. But this year we're doing six. We're doing the Psycho films. All of the films, starting with the Hitchcock original, including the 80s TV movie Bates Motel, ending with Gus Van Sant's remake, which is coming out the Friday before Halloween. Yeah, it's a great time of the year. We've been bringing up Psycho as long as I've been on this show. Since Friday the 13th in 2009, I have been wanting to cover it, and we finally are. I hope you can join us. And just remember, your donation pays for all the shows we do. This show today, Kick-Ass 2, provided for free to all of our listeners, was made possible thanks to the support of a few loyal donors. And so, if you enjoy the show we put out every week, if you're looking forward to the upcoming Stephen King retrospective series, we rely on donors. That's going to take us years, folks. Years. Stephen King, years. And in order to go for years, we need to have continual support from donors. So if you haven't donated before, head to nowplayingpodcast.com, click the banner at the top, gives you all the details. Or maybe you can just get Motherfucker to support us. I mean, all we really need is one big donor, right? Like, if you could just find that guy, we'll go work for him. But yes, it, t- it takes money to produce this content. We have to take time out of our lives. We have to go see the movies. I have to buy the books and read up on it. It's a huge commitment that we're happy to do, but it requires financial support. And so that's why we ask you to do this. It's not because we're trying to get rich. We're not getting rich. We're getting the show done, and that's what we like to do. Yes, my superpower is not that I'm fucking rich. My superpower is that I don't fucking sleep. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. That is true. I could email you at any time of the day. I feel like you're up. So all those details at nowplayingpodcast.com. Stuart, Jacob, thank you for joining me. We will be back next week as we start a new retrospective series reviewing the Riddick films. Jacob, Brock, and I are going to be looking at Pitch Black. So until next time, Jersey Shore, motherfucker! It's closing time!
Thank you for listening to Now Playing's Marvel Misfits Retrospective Series, part of our Marvel Comics movie series. You should have kept your Yankee nose out of this, boy! Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we continue looking at our Marvel Misfits, Howard the Duck, Man-Thing, and Kick-Ass. They don't actually read comics. You can find other Now Playing retrospective series, such as Star Trek, Terminator, Predator, Philip K. Dick, Tron, and many more at our website. Go to NowPlayingPodcast.com and click the archives link to find those series, as well as individual movie reviews such as Avatar, Inception, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Oh, child, you always knock me for a loop. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss the Marvel movie films with other listeners. There's no idea as to who is behind the broadcast of this show, but we could see widespread server crashes. You can also follow Now Playing at Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. How do I get a hold of you? You just contact the mayor's office. He has a special signal that shines in the sky. It's in the shape of a giant cock. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. I feel much better. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. We appreciate your cooperation. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available at our homepage. Any questions? Yeah. Where are my pants? Now Playing's Marvel Comic Book Misfits series is edited by Arnie. I'm way over my head. Now Playing is not affiliated with Marvel Enterprises, Universal Pictures, Lionsgate Films, or Artisan Entertainment. The Marvel characters and all that the Marvel Universe contains is the intellectual property and trademark of Marvel Publishing Incorporated, and no infringement is intended. They get the point, Denning! Now Playing is a Venganza Media Production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved. Show's over, motherfuckers. Led by ex-mafia enforcer turned reborn Christian Colonel Stars and Stripes. On that team, Dave Feige... Do you, do you, real quick, do you want to say born-again Christian? I think he said reborn. <laughs> I just, I've never heard that term for a born-again. I haven't either. I obviously don't know a whole lot about Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> just a small thing, but it sounded weird. Response. Oh, no, 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 no. There's One Direction, which is a boy band from yeah. the UK, and I thought it was a playoff. Oh, yeah, yeah. They have that, uh, you don't know you're beautiful. Yeah. Why so, am I able to pull this shit out? I don't know. I, <laughs> this is, this is not looking good for me. I only know of One Direction because they got a ton of toys at Toys R Us that I always see when I go there. I know them because somebody did a good Avengers parody on YouTube. Avengers assemble. One's an MFA fighter. One's an, MF. Did I say that right? M- MMA. Yeah. M- M- Master of Fine Arts fighter? <laughs> yeah. I, I thought motherfucking artist fighter. Yeah, I think a lot of the uh, superheroes are that, but uh, yes. Is so much better than Viper versus. What's her name? Yakuza? Y- y- Mariko? Z- uh, or y- or Mariko. No, Yukio. No, no, the no, one it was yeah, Yukio. Yukio. Response. Texas Chainsaw 3D. A good day to die hard. 
G.I. Joe Retaliation, Man of Steel, Iron Man 3, Star Trek Into Darkness, Red 2, The Wolverine, Jesus Christ, this year's Pacific been hard Pacific Rim, on you want to throw that one in there? Okay, Pacific Rim, Jesus Christ, this year's been World hard on me. World War Z, <laughs> Jesus Christ, this year's been hard Even- on me. Did I miss another one, Jacob? You cut out. I, I was going to say Evil Dead, but I think you liked that one, didn't you? <laughs> If you want to support our show even more, ooh, I just bumped my mouth against the freaking windscreen. <laughs> Too bad. That was. It hurt my tooth. Too bad. Donate some more and maybe we can get video podcast and be able to see such things. <laughs> <laughs> or Artie could get some de- needed dental work now. Franz, <laughs> Oh, Jesus! <laughs> yeah, there's a dog on your butt. <laughs>